Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from resources for the future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Kim Stanley Robinson, acclaimed author of many books, most recently, Ministry for the Future. Stan's books vividly illustrate some of the most devastating potential consequences of climate change, but that's not all they do. They also offer innovation and optimism, imagining the ways in which we can prevent some of the worst impacts of climate change and adapt to those that are unavoidable. This conversation is definitely not your standard resources radio fare, but we think you'll really enjoy it. We talk about Stan's recent visit to COP26, his views on climate economics, modern monetary theory, space opera, and more. Stay with us. All right. It is really a thrill to welcome Ken Stanley Robinson to the show, author of so many great books. Uh, Stan, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Good to be with you, Daniel. So we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff today, but uh, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place. So uh, how did you sort of start thinking about this stuff, writing about this stuff? What brought you into this uh, realm? Well, it must have started pretty early on. I I grew up in Orange County, California, and it was actually orange groves when I was a child. And then the groves got pulled out, a a giant um, city got replaced it, and that gave me a sense of um, rapid history and technological change. And then uh, while I was an undergraduate, I went up to the Sierra Nevada of California for the first time and have been a Sierra person ever since. And so the combination of those things, um, it's kind of a California experience to be aware of your environment. And as a science fiction writer, it always struck me that the planet itself was interesting from being a science fictional type object. So it all came together and made sense to me. Yeah. And this isn't science fiction at all. It's like it's part fiction, part nonfiction. But uh, your story about the orange groves being ripped out just reminded me of the film Chinatown, of course, uh, and, you know, one of the great works of art having to do with the removal of orange groves. Yes. And, you know, that is um, a very valid point to bring up right now because of the drought, the ongoing droughts, because the entirety of California is a plumbing system. It's it's terraformed and the water that's there is substantially from elsewhere or uh, has been captured by a reservoir and canal system. And when the drought hits at 35 million people in California, I'm stunned that people aren't more scared than they are because we could get to quite extreme water shortages. And then I suppose agriculture will have to be shut down. But even so, you'd think they would be talking about, you know, negotiating with the people up in Portland to suck water out of the Columbia River and run it down to Lake Shasta, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, I don't hear any kind of a plan B's emerging on the waterfront. So we'll see what happens, but I'm scared on that front too. Yeah, understandable. Well, um, we could definitely talk about California water issues uh, for the next half an hour, but I think we won't. Uh, instead, let's talk about you and your work, uh, which spans uh, so many uh, fascinating areas. But um, you know, one of the themes that you come back to regularly is, of course, climate change, um, and you know, imagining how climate change might uh, shape the future uh, features prominently in in so many of your books, including the most recent one, the Ministry for the Future. So, uh, what drew you to imagining those different kinds of futures under a changing climate? 
Well, reality itself in our current day uh, kind of forces the issue. So if you're a science fiction writer, you can do near future science fiction or far future, which people think of as space opera, zipping around the galaxy in spaceships. And in between, a very interesting zone that I've spent a lot of time in that I call future history, like a couple hundred years out. Well, near future science fiction and even a couple hundred years out has been entirely overwhelmed by the climate crisis. If you're going to write at all realistically about those time zones anymore, you can't help but start to write climate fiction because it's an overdetermining factor. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, so, you know, one of the things that, that always strikes me about uh, your your books is this really rich, wonderful blend of fear uh, around climate change, uh, but also optimism and innovation and hope. Um, you know, I, I won't go into too much detail, but the the opening scene of the Ministry for the Future is really it's it's brutal. It's kind of like a gut punch, uh, and it's incredibly effective. And then, you know, but a lot of other parts of the book offer optimism and innovation and hope. So, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of blend those uh, those elements together and what what the motivation might be behind it? Well, um, it, it seems to me that it's just the reality principle. That's the way reality itself is. It's a combination of hopes and fears. I would say that every person is a science fiction writer in that regard. That You have hopes. You would like to have a good life. You therefore do things in the present to try to make a good future. That's your utopian imaginary. And then, you know, in the middle of the night, you're uh, worrying and you're missing certain biochemicals in your brain and everything seems really dark and dire and that's your dystopian imaginary um, so fears and hopes everybody does it and what is i mean the trick i think is to uh, in a story is to sustain a balance where while reading it you feel a, a thrill of recognition like yeah that is the way reality is there are bad things coming down on us and um every individual is going to die. So it's pretty easy to imagine that if you don't block that imagination. And uh, and yet we keep on working and good things happen also. So a story has to negotiate that emotional balance. Yeah. And and how do you, do you have a process by by which you sort of come to the innovative solutions that people figure out? Or like, do you, how do you brainstorm on stuff like that? Well, I read um, I talk to scientists. I try to survey the literature. I try to look at um, what's most germane to the story that I'm trying to write. And then I sort things out. Okay, this story needs to know these kinds of things. Often I don't know those things in enough detail to write. So then I'll I'll sketch out a kind of a first draft that's um, extremely weak. And then I'll r see what I really need to know and then go ask people about it or read up on it. So um, it's a, I research on a need-to-know basis, story by story, and it is true that the cumulative effect of having done um, Antarctica, the Green Earth Trilogy, uh, New York 2140, and Aurora, and now Ministry for the Future means that the, the research from earlier books actually was really helpful for this work on the most recent books, so that it, it can appear to be um, extremely knowledgeable as a book. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and this next question kind of touches on that that issue of of talking to to scientists and researchers and keeping up with the literature. You know, for listeners of Resources Radio, 
you'll know that RFF is predominantly a sort of economics research institution and economic concepts and economic models come in for some harsh treatment in, in Ministry for the Future, which was, uh, which was really interesting to read about. Uh, and so can you talk a little bit about those critiques that you lay out in, in the book of some of the conventional climate modeling uh, and climate economic modeling that's been done in the past. And, and I'm also wondering um, sort of how you keep up, particularly on, on climate economics, which is which has actually changed a lot uh, over the last 10 or 20 years or so. So can you just talk about that issue in general? Sure. Well, I think that um, my ministry for the future is extremely respectful of the power of economics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been much more critical and dismissive in earlier books, including the Mars Trilogy, and plumped for entirely new and, um, you might say, post-capitalist uh, future political economies with a kind of a back of the hand to um, late capitalism. Well, you can't do that and still stay realistic to the world that we're in and suggest solutions to the situation we're in right now. You have to um, acknowledge that we're in a nation-state system running by a globalist capitalist economy and see what levers there are to escape the mass extinction events. So yes, I mean, I've looked at behavioral economics, happiness economics, donut economics, and, and environmental economics, of course, going all the way back to Herman Daly and eco-economics, etc. Um, I would say they're all trapped in capitalist realism a little bit too much. That I mean, they're useful for my purposes because they are trying to deal with the present system, but they don't work very hard at, at uh, imagining the next system. Um, there's work to be done on the discount rate that I don't find the being done properly. In other words, the discount rate is set way too high. William Nordhaus got the pseudo-Nobel for setting the discount rate way too high for a viable future. It should maybe even be zero. And then nobody seems to be working on social reproduction. The fact that um, humans do things for other humans to keep humans alive that capitalism then predates on and um, is, is um, parasitical on. And if you didn't have social reproduction, you wouldn't have profits anywhere. Well, where's the economist talking about that? I mean, Nancy Fraser criticizes it, but nobody talks about it. Um, the carbon coin, of course, this is a new, a new uh, uh, concept that I, I went into quite deeply in the Ministry for the Future, because I think there's some, um, some possibilities there for sneaking out of this crisis by um, a kind of super Keynesian or modern monetary theory type push on uh, quantitatively easing money that is specifically spent on decarbonizing. But in short, I think economics is still too neoliberal, too academic, too chicken shit, and, and hasn't taken on capitalist realism when we need it in an emergency. It's important, everybody bows to it, and it's a giant discipline, and yet you do not see um, the Journal of Post-Capitalist Economics. I mean, there are some think tanks that are working at this stuff, but um, it's timid stuff compared to what we really need right now. So as a, a writer trying to think about this stuff, I read everything I can, and I'm still uh, frustrated, as you can tell, by the lack of um, good work in that regard. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think... Um... On an, on the narrow issue of the the discount rate, I think there actually has been a lot of there has been a lot of work on that since the the, the Nordhaus work that um, that I think you referenced, and including at RFF, uh, Good. several of my colleagues have been working hard on discounting and and certainly come up with lower numbers than let's say a four percent discount rate. Yes. Most, I think yeah, um, but yeah, but your critiques are, are are really interesting, and I think they should be heard by uh, climate and environmental economists who are, who are working on this stuff, and that lack of imagination. 
imagination is one thing that that actually strikes me about environmental economics. I don't know if you've ever attended an environmental or energy economics conference, but one of the things that is so weird is that everybody literally uses the same like format for their PowerPoint slides. <laughs> like there's a single program that yeah. everybody uses and everyone uses the same font and the same layout and the same order. And it's just like, it's always struck me as like really bizarre. Well, mutual comprehensibility, What you can see how people fall into that. And people only write about the stuff that other people already know about. So you get accepted in the papers, you get understood. I mean, this happens in every discipline. Um, I've been hearing about what you might call... Um, shifting discount rates like in a bell curve so that you start at zero but then in order to avoid infinities in your calculations you kind of over time you bell out to a slightly higher discount rate and some people have said the opposite should be what you do that you have a discount rate and then you um, shade it towards zero as you get further out into the future Um, i have not the technical chops to talk about this but one thing i find interesting when we're talking economics is that the central banks, the, uh, I've been speaking to central bankers who are interested in the carbon coin. And of course, I can say very little except go for it. But the, the network for greening the financial system, that's 89 central banks as a kind of a giant think tank or exchange of ideas. And, and they have a white paper with nine points for how to green finance that I think is maybe the carbon coin is a symbol for those nine points. Maybe not. Maybe the carbon coin would be a tenth point. I can't tell. But work's being done, and and also I would, I gotta give a shout out to Donut Economics, uh, Kate Raworth, that because of the image, you you look at Johann Rockstrom's planetary boundaries in the outer circle of the, of the donut, um, if I understand it right. But in any case, it's a new image. If you were to graph it on your PowerPoint, you'd have to say, wait, what does that mean? And and Dalton Chen in his paper on the carbon coin, he has some circular uh, or uh, equivalently um, new. Uh, diagrams to try to rethink the issue. So I, I don't want to be um, dismissive or critical because I do think good work was being done. It's just that having been to COP26, we need more of it. We need more of it fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And um, yeah, I'm actually not familiar with this donut economics idea. So so I'll really enjoy looking into that. Before we go on to the next question, which is about uh, asking you about COP26, um, you've referenced the carbon coin a few times and and folks who are listening who have not read the book but I'm sure who will soon go out and pick up the book and read it, um, probably don't know what what you're referring to. So can you explain to us this concept of the carbon coin? Sure. Part of it comes out of a paper by Delton Chen that's online and and, uh, his colleagues, and now he's uh, part of a little think tank devoted to it. Um, The idea would be that the central banks, so we're talking fiat money, not cryptocurrency, the central banks would pay uh, a carbon coin for every 100 tons of carbon sequestered out of the atmosphere or kept in the ground. It gets a little um, uh, loose as to what the definition would be of how you earn a carbon coin, but anybody could earn it from an individual right up to a nation state. And that way, the central banks would be paying hard cash for people to decarbonize. So some people call it carbon quantitative easing. Um, in that you would make up a whole lot of new money, as in the quantitative easing of 2008 or 2020, um, to, uh, but devote that new money to decarbonization first. It isn't just money to give to the private banks in, in the usual way. So these are the two parts of the carbon coin. And I, I will add quickly, because it gets us into very deep waters, that I take it as a logical extension that if you keep carbon in the ground that you might otherwise have burned, um, you're going to take a huge loss and probably deserve compensation for sequestering carbon. And therefore, 
we're going to have to pay the petrostates for their lost income. And this is a shocking amount of money and it's a shocking geopolitical reality. You can't have 10 of the strongest countries on earth go into a gigantic depression because they can't burn their stranded asset. They might try it anyway, in which case we're torched in a different manner. So um, um, there is a, there's going to have to be a financial fix to an economic fix to this um, conundrum of how do we, how do we not burn carbon that people have already borrowed against and used as financial assets and resources and payments for their citizens? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it's such a, such a big issue. I mean, I think one of the really big questions is whether it, it it's more efficient to address it on the supply side or, or on the demand side or, or some combination of the two. Um, and the carbon coin conceptually, I imagine it could be used uh, on either end, but I think it would mostly be relevant to the supply side. Well, I think if you drew it down out of the atmosphere, so you got direct air capture, kind of expensive, but if you got paid for it by the ton of carbon and, and it suddenly wouldn't be so expensive because you were getting paid for it, etc. You see how, I mean, it's an all hands on deck situation where um, anything should should uh, earn you one if you're uh, sequestering carbon. And that would get a technical definition and a monitoring force of people like bond rating agencies. And so there would be possibilities for strange corruption and problems, but it's the way of the world. You know, once you decide that you're going to pay people for doing something, you have to check whether they did it or not. Yeah. And, you know, and to some extent, we're already there, right, with net zero pledges that rely on, you know, carbon offsets through forestry and things like that. It's Indeed. already yes. a major accounting challenge. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, it'll be very similar to that. Yeah. Well, so let's move on from this topic and um, uh, ask you about your trip to Glasgow, uh, where you recently returned from. Uh, you attended COP26. Can you tell us about um, just kind of some of your general thoughts? A little bit. I'm still sorting them out. It was overwhelming and I'm quite confused. Uh, in, in, I mean, in some ways I was tremendously impressed and encouraged. The process, 190 countries, they get together in a room. Um, they are hammering out uh, laws and norms uh, sentence by sentence and word by word. Um, it's impressive. I, I was given, a, I was invited by the UK government and given a badge to go into the negotiating sessions themselves. And that was by far the best part of COP26 was to see the actual work in the room. Um, you couldn't help but love it because of the attention to language and to detail by serious people. So it wasn't, there was no bullshit involved. There was hard, hard disagreements being disguised under that language having to do with mostly the money. Um, and I was interested to see that process too. Um, for the rest of it, well, you know, COP, the COP system is made up to be a ratcheting system where at each COP they try to ratchet countries' promises um, to make it tighter and tighter to get us closer to that 1.5C uh, rise in temperature limit to get down to that. And um, there's two problems. The ratchet is a little too slow because we need it to be done in the next few years to get quite a bit further than the ordinary process would go because 190 countries have to agree. It's a total consensus system, which means any one country can, in fact, mess things up, and they do. So it's, it's necessarily slow, um, and we, we need it to go fast. And the other problem is this. It keeps coming back to money where the rich nations really have to give money to the poor nations for adaptation and for uh, clean energy and for clean water, etc., etc. So um, nobody wants to give away money. And even this is one of the ways in which a carbon coin might be a little bit of a way out because this wouldn't be someone's money. This would be new money backed by the power of the big central banks like the U.S. 
Um, and so in a way you could say, yes, you, you have this um, um, $500 billion a year talking to the developing world or even $2 trillion a year, which is estimated as a necessary price. Um, we just made it up, but we'll back it. And at that point, you've got an enormous amount of human work. You've got basically full employment in places that are suffering with unemployment to do the necessary mitigation work and clean energy, et cetera. So um, I see a fix, but right now it's, um, it, it's just barely being discussed at this point. And it would require a giant amount of, of uh, mutual trust, which is a little short on the ground. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so, uh, you know, having spent so much time in, in those private negotiating sessions, I'm, I'm curious what your impressions were also, not just of the negotiations on the inside, but the atmosphere surrounding it, right? There are lots of side events and, you know, over 10,000 people in attendance. What was the sort of feeling outside of those rooms like to you? And how did it contrast with the feeling inside the room? Well, it was like a trade show. Um, people were um, a big trade show or, or like Comic Con. It had an entertainment aspect. If you come into my pavilion, you'll learn more about this, you'll learn more about that. Many of them were quite terrifying to go into, you know, a Francophone Africa or uh, the places under stress. Um, some scientists put together a country called the cryosphere, which would be to say all the ice on the planet, including permafrost, and that was absolutely terrifying. It was just like one of those island nations. Um, the president of the Maldives Island is um, prominent there. So, um, a little bit zoo-like, a little bit, there's overwhelming. You could not possibly see everything that was on display, so you had to kind of stagger around by chance or make a, a thoughtful examination of what you might want to learn about. Um, but I suspect it's a little more of the former. You keep your eye on what you wanted to get accomplished, and then the trade show was just, well, who did I run to, when and where? Um, it, was, it was more like 40,000 people inside one of the biggest exhibition halls I've ever seen with all kinds of rooms. So it had a circus-like atmosphere that was, um, well, in some ways, I don't want to be negative because even though it was circus-like, everybody was focused on climate and we need to do something and our country has a solution or, or even our company has a solution. And then outside the gates of the blue zone, which is where all this was happening, there was a green zone where there was indeed a kind of an informational, educational in entertainment program going on, very lively, very full of hope and, um, and uh, cheer and song and story. And uh, then outside the gates of both of them were protesters from Glasgow and elsewhere who were um, uh, wonderful in that I think their shouts and this kind of Greta Thunberg's uh, blah, 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 um, it's not the Paris Agreement discussions that are blah, blah, blah. Those are la, 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 and they're important. But what I hope she's directing her accusations at is the world leaders, the political representation that represents us all at the highest levels. Those people have to step out there with some guts and make commitments and then hope that their constituencies keep them in office. And this is a, um, for them, it must be personally challenging to make that kind of commitment. But that's, I think, what the protesters were mostly protesting about. Not against COP, but against world governments that send their representatives to COP. Yeah. I, that's certainly the impression that I got as well from the at least the media coverage that I that I saw some of those protests. 
Well, yeah, your your perceptions are really interesting, especially, you know, we just recently aired an episode with our vice president, Billy Pizer, who was also at COP, uh, and hearing his impressions are in many ways similar to yours. One of the themes of Billy's comments was that the side events, the private companies and the non-state actors, uh, that there was really a lot of action on that front. And, yes. and in, in some ways, the bringing together of those communities was you know, maybe not as significant as the government-to-government negotiations, but certainly very significant. I think so. I would agree with that. I went to several of those meetings myself, and they would be on a specific topic. Um, One was new nuclear. Can we do a new kind of safer nuclear and convince people that it's a um, uh, a carbon neutral or low carbon burn compared to fossil fuels, a replacement of and power and energy? They were very enthusiastic to see each other. Another one was a, a stopping deforestation group, a forest group, uh, completely filled with energy. And then there was one that was a finance group, like, can we get private capital to invest in this stuff as maybe not the highest rate of return in, in the current rubric, but soon to become the, the highest or the best or the most reliable, the best way to go long and a solid source of investment. And so this is to go into a zone of where you have to acknowledge that the ordinary rules of capitalism are going to obtain in this next decade to the point where they have to be marshaled to this cause. And I think legislation is important in that. But if the groups come together and say, let's do this on our own because they feel the fear and they're well-educated people in positions of power and with lots of money, then it's great to see because it's going to be a public-private combination that solves this problem. It's not going to be a mass government program that takes over everything, although there are some uh, clear signs that that might be the best way to go. But since it's unlikely to happen, you need to include the private sector and get their energy involved. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, I think that sentiment is, is being, you know, uh, adopted uh, wider and wider every year, especially as government action doesn't get us where we where we need to go. So, um, you know, one question that I really wanted to ask you about, and it relates to a couple of things we've already touched on, is just the relationship between art and politics. Um, you're, you know, you're an artist, you're a writer, but you work on topics that have very clear political valence. You know, you're you're at these negotiations. You're, you know, one of the most highly placed artists to be able to contribute to these discussions and be informed by them and sort of have that two-way dialogue. So can you just talk a little bit about how you think about your role as an artist in the political or um, sort of advocacy process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a a problem for me, obviously. I think all art is political, but um, if you think of music without lyrics or you think about art or abstract paintings or sculpture, it's not so obvious how they're political, although they are. But the novel is quite obviously political, and because you're you're choosing a theory of history to write a novel and a theory of personalities, and all these things are political. And then the science fiction novel setting things in the future and then portraying a course of history that gets to that moment, that's obviously political. So you've got to um, be aware of that, and you play that game, and still try to make it good on the level of a work of art, the equivalent of a vase or a, uh, an abstract sculpture. Uh, so the balance is sometimes uh, overwhelming for me, but it's obvious it needs to be done. I look to great predecessors, you know, Bertolt Brecht and uh, explicitly political uh, writers. Um, and then I try to figure out, well, um, what would my characters say about this? And try to make up characters that 
um, are not like me. And I must say that I feel that very strongly that I have a lot of characters that aren't much like me personally and I, and clear space for them and let them speak their minds. And then I have a kind of dialogue or an argument going on, or sometimes even a fight or a revolution between characters who have their own views that have their own integrity, that if you're a reader, you could say, well, um, that character hasn't been turned into a villain just because he holds these particular um, political beliefs that look to be in contradiction, perhaps, to the uh, political beliefs of the author of the book or of the novel as a whole thing taken that way. So um, it's, as I say, it's this is a tough balance to hold to and to make uh, lively and real. Uh, but I have done my best, and I feel like these novels are indeed novels. And uh, the fact that, you know, when people ask me to comment on things like economics because I wrote a novel about it, this is somewhat of a category error. I mean, I am a novelist. <laughs> so I say, well, my book knows more than I do. I studied for it like a test. I took the test. I walked away. Please teach me more. And that I've learned is the best answer. If the book is please them or, or convince them whilst reading it and they have comments and they want to talk about it, then I don't try to say any more. I try to ask them, well, what did they notice? What was problematic? If I were to do it again, what would I do to make it more granular or, or more real to the real situation that you know of? And of course, people will go on forever on that topic. And I am sort of let off the hook. <laughs> That's such a great answer. Um, it's so interesting just to hear about how you think about all this stuff. So we're getting near the end of our time, but I want to ask you one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is just kind of a big picture question. Uh, we started off this conversation talking about optimism and pessimism or fear and optimism. As you look back over your career, uh, how has your your own perspective changed? Have you become more or less optimistic about sort of society writ large, about our ability to address environmental problems? And I know that's like an enormous question and maybe it's not really answerable, but I'm curious uh, your reaction to it. Well, it is hard to answer that one. I mean, I began my career in the midst of what felt like a quite acute nuclear crisis, that the world could go up in smoke in a nuclear war any day. This I'm talking about the late 70s, early 80s. As a leftist from the 60s and 70s, the neoliberal turn was a gigantic shock and slap in the face. So although the nuclear threat seemed to subside, we also entered a period of mass inequality and destruction of the biosphere for the sake of short-term profits for just the richest amongst us. So it's been like an ongoing catastrophe. Now that we're here, push has come to shove. It can't go on. And what can't go on won't go on. So this is the thing. Big changes are coming because the current order can't go on the way it's going. There are some elements of hope in that. You can think, well, the changes, if we were to negotiate a settlement, if we were to uh, legislate a, a revolution without the violence of a revolution by way of being smart and, and um, negotiating our way there, which many people think is quite possible if we would just pay attention to the dangers and the opportunities, then um, we might rather quickly get to a new structure of feeling, a new political economy. People 10 years from now might look back at this as an, you know, a precursor moment to a, a decade of mass change. Now, that was, did not feel, it didn't feel that way in the early 1990s, for instance. So in that sense, uh, I'm more hopeful than ever, but it's partly because the situation has become more and more dangerous. It's as dangerous as it's ever been in my life. We're on, trembling on the brink of a mass extinction event. And, if, and that's the thing that can't be recovered from. Extinctions of other species, we cannot come back from those even if we were to get our act together. 
um, as a human species. If the other species uh, we've killed off already, then we've done an irrevocably bad thing. So dodging mass extinction as a kind of principle for action is something that I've been uh, promoting as well because we're, we're very close. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, yeah. And your work is just such a great way for us to imagine some of those different futures and also just a, a really fantastic encapsulation of, you know, the, the danger we face and also the types of steps we need to take to, to overcome them. And so just really appreciate you coming on the show today and really appreciate all of your work. Uh, now we want to ask you the last question we ask all of your guests, which is uh, to recommend something uh, related to the environment, even if it's a little tangential, uh, that you think is really great. So what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Um, at the top, and it is tangential, but I think very relevant to the crisis we're in, is The Price of Peace by Zachary Carter. Now, this is a biography of John Maynard Keynes, but when Keynes dies, it goes on for a couple hundred more pages. It's a biography of Keynesianism as a set of ideas. And given the moment that we're in right now, I think the um, the history of Keynes, that you know he was ignored after World War I and his uh, suggestions as to what to do with Germany, and so we got the Depression and we got World War II. He was um, paid attention to uh, by FDR's team in the Depression and a post-war to a certain extent at Bretton Woods. And so we got a better order than we would have otherwise. So the book goes into quite um, impressive granular detail on this. And the lessons in it for us now, I feel, are really immediate. That You can take that book and look at the situation now and go, yeah, we need... Um, a Keynesian solution. We need a stimulus from government. We need perhaps private finance to be seized by government to be pointed in the right directions to get us out of this fix, so on and so forth. So I think that would be the book I'd put on the list. Great. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation and for coming on the show with us today and for your work. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, his most recent book is The Ministry for the Future. Uh, once again, thank you so much, Stan, for joining us today on the show. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.